chapter 5. I'll speak loudly and Adam will continue to turn up the volume if needed as this rain persists. 1 John chapter 5 verses 6 through 12 and on the heels of what we just read in John chapter 8, we're going to consider this morning the greatest testimony of Jesus, the Lord's own testimony of his son. It's what John writes about in these verses. John is giving his last instruction before he moves to his summary conclusion in verses 13 through 21 of 1 John chapter 5, and quite the instruction it is. John began this letter by writing of the deity, the personhood, and the sonship of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the one true Son of God, and he comes back to that topic for his last instruction in this letter. Now, we have to remember the immediate context preceding this. We saw last week that if we are going to overcome with, in, and through Christ, what was one of those pertinent things that we must have? Right belief. Right belief in the biblical Jesus. John comes now and he gives the Father's own testimony that Jesus Christ is his one, true, only, and saving Son. John tells us that the Lord has revealed to us that Jesus is the Messiah. John seeks to ensure that these saints hold to the right Jesus. So we're going to read our text, and I will tell you before we even read it that there are some interpretive challenges in these verses. We'll do our best to work through them, but we'll read the text, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time, and then we will dive in. So if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me as we show reverence to the reading of God's holy word. This word is inerrant, it is inspired it is infallible. It is breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God for our instruction. First John chapter 5, and I'll read beginning in verse 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Now let's go before the Lord in prayer.
Father, you are great, you're glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing, the only wise God. You make the sun to shine, you make the rain to fall, you give us the very breath of our lungs. Lord, may you be highly exalted and glorified today as we worship you. Lord, you're the one to whom belongs all honor and glory and praise. We thank you, our great God, for the hope that is made available to us through Christ. For it's in Christ that we as dead sinners are able to be made alive. Because he took the penalty and the punishment due our sin. Lord, may that simple but gloriously extravagant truth of the gospel grip our hearts today that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Lord, as we consider your testimony regarding your son, the greatest testimony regarding Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive the glorious good news of the gospel of Christ. Lord, it may be a message with which we are familiar, but it's the message that we have and hold to and proclaim for all of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate our minds today. As there are challenges in this text, help us to not get hung up where we don't need to be hung up. Help us to understand what we need to understand and by your spirit, Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply that which we need to apply. So that's the great goal of sitting under the authority of your word, Lord, that we learn and that we apply, that we hear and that we do, that we take the word in and that the word transforms us and conforms us into the glorious image of Christ. So, Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. Would you help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to be attentive? Lord, I know the circumstances right now can be distracting, but we know that your spirit is so much greater than any distraction that we could ever, ever encounter. So, Lord, give us minds and hearts that are actively and eagerly engaged with your word. Write these truths upon our hearts. Cause us to lift our eyes from the temporal things of life and fix them on the glorious reward that comes in eternity when we are perfected, when we see and know Christ perfectly. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive and respond to your truth. Pray that the words spoken this morning would bring honor and glory to the King. Lord, to you belongs all glory and honor and praise. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite pastors and commentators to quote, he began his sermon on this very passage by quoting another theologian, a man by the name of Alfred 
Plummer, who was from the late 19th century. Plummer stated that this is the most perplexing passage in this entire epistle, and one of the most difficult in the entirety of the New Testament. Boyce went on to agree with, with that assertion. He went on to, to say that it's this, the interpretations of the words water and blood that make the interpretation of this passage a little bit challenging. Consulted several commentaries, the likes of MacArthur and Kistemacher and Calvin and Henry and the Reformation Study Bible, along with Boyce and others. And the interesting thing is that there's not really a general consensus here. There, there's several opinions shared from, from these different people. And to study this, we need to get to a single idea. And so when we come to verses 6 through 8 in a moment, what we're going to do is kind of talk about those briefly. But then I'm going to give you the interpretation that I landed on, and we're going to study the passage in light of that interpretation because we can't really have our, our hands going several different directions and make any ground through this passage. So why is that acceptable? Why, why can there be these different opinions from, from these trusted pastors, preachers, and theologians, and we're going to pick one and we're going to go with that? Why is that acceptable? Well, it's because the interpretation of verses 6 through 8 really doesn't affect the overall thrust of the passage. The interpretation of the spirit and the water and the blood, wherever you may land on that, doesn't affect what John is saying in totality here. Verse 9 is the hinge. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. The testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. John is saying the thrust here is that God's testimony is greater than any testimony that we may hear of men. Think about what he was facing, the Gnostics who were going to take their own ideas and try to push those forward as the truth. John says, not so fast, the testimony of God is greater than men, and God has testified that Jesus is his son. And just a little preview, that concept will drive a little bit of how we interpretate verses 6 through 8. This must be the direction of our lives, friends. Consider this, that we hear and believe and receive the testimony of God. His written revelation, it is what guides and orders our lives. The testimony of men may be helpful and it may be useful at times. Science may help us grow in knowledge and understanding. History can certainly help us not repeat the mistakes of the past. But it's God's word, his revelation, handed down, written down, and handed down throughout the ages that must drive our lives. It's God's word that must capture our hearts and captain our future. The testimony of men is useful, but the testimony of God is greater. When you think about interpreting Scripture, and this applies to every text, but certainly to difficult texts like this, the question you must ask, really and most basically, is how does this point to Christ? How does this show us His saving work and His glory that is one day to be fulfilled in the fulfillment and consummation of all things? With that as the main interpretive tool, this passage kind of becomes simple because Christ 
is the focus. He is the central figure. John is writing of Jesus' deity, that he is the very Son of God, and that we have life through his finished work, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and his return to glory. So we may not have complete clarity uh, on some parts of, of these verses, but we understand the main point that Jesus is the Son of God, that God has testified that we have eternal life, and this life, as verse 11 says, is in his Son. This theme all builds together to verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who has Jesus has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life abiding in him. So I'll give you a purpose statement from this. Believing in the Father's sure testimony of Jesus as Son and Savior, as revealed in Scripture, is the only way to receive eternal life. A real simple purpose. A real simple thesis to this text. We must believe in the Jesus that God has proclaimed and revealed in Scripture if we are to have eternal life. So four headings, four phases to work through in this text. The three witnesses will consider the Lord's greater testimony. We'll consider condemning unbelief in verse 10. And then lastly, the eternal life in verses 11 and 12. So let's come to verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8, the three witnesses. And we'll put on our thinking caps here and we'll allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds. John writes, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It's the Spirit who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. So again, let me point you back to verse 5 because this is... This is what we have to have in our minds as we begin here. That John has just said, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must believe God's testimony about Jesus if you are to overcome in the faith. So John says, this is the one. This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus is he. So the first two witnesses, water and blood, what does it mean? How does water, how does blood testify to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, do you notice that John uses definite articles as he's writing? It's the word the. He, he says, he came by water and blood, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. That points us to the fact that John has something specific in mind. This is not some general type of statement about water and blood, you know, maybe pointing to that. He, he came through the water that, that kind of marks our flesh and our world, and, and we see his blood and his death or blood in his life of his body. No, this is a specific statement. He's pointing to something specific, and this is where the commentators start to diverge is what then does he mean? Everybody picks up on that. He's pointing to something specific. But what is he pointing to? Could it, could it be 
the time there at the cross when the soldier comes and, and pierces his side. And what does the text tell us? John's gospel. He was pierced in the side and water and blood flowed out. Some pick up on that and say, this is what John's talking about. When, when at the cross, water and blood flowed out, and that is where God testified that Jesus was his son. What about his baptism and the blood of his cross? The water of baptism, the blood of the cross. There are even more ideas than, than those two main ones, but, but those are the two, I think, that make the most logical sense. It's either the, the, the water and blood that flowed out when he was pierced, or the water speaks to his baptism and the blood speaks to his cross. Just as a side note, before I push forward, I think this is a good, a good point of application, a good thing to think through. You know, going back to chapter 4, we talked about testing the spirits to see whether or not they're true or false or from God or not from God. And, and we saw that we have to divide at, at some point. We, we can't just all walk together and we don't agree on anything, but we still walk together in some false sense of unity. Well, again, faithful, faithful ministers don't agree here. This is one of those really tertiary points of Scripture where we don't have to have full agreement on how to interpret the text and still be able to walk in unity. This does not drive a major doctrine. This does not drive a, a major theological truth and point that we must hold to as a confession or a conviction as believers. And so it's this type of thing where maybe one theologian winds up on one side, another, another, and a third, even in a third position, and yet they can all be trusted and considered faithful. So, the moment of truth. How are we going to interpret this text? Where are we going to land? Well, initially, I like the idea of pointing back to the cross, the, the, the piercing of the side and the water and the blood. But as I studied more and more, and I'd even read MacArthur's commentary before I got that, but then as I studied more and more, I, I landed where MacArthur did. And some of y'all are going to say, yeah, that's a shock. But initially, I wasn't there. But I think the the point that John is making, the point that the Lord is making, is that at the front end and the back end of Jesus' public ministry, the water of baptism and the blood of his cross, the Father testified that Jesus was his Son. And Scripture really bears that out. And so it's an inexhaustive explanation, but that's how we're going to interpret. That's what we're going to consider with the water and the blood, and the Spirit. So the water, how does the water testify? How is the water part of the Father's testimony that Jesus is God's Son? Think about the baptism of Jesus. It's recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels and even referenced in John chapter 1 as well. So Matthew 3, Mark 1, or Luke chapter 3. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 1. Mark 1 verses 9 through 11. How does the baptism testify that Jesus is the Son of God? It becomes very clear. Mark 1 verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending on him and a voice came out of the heavens. You 
are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. The father testifying that Jesus is his son. He is the one in whom the father is well pleased. He is the Messiah. And interesting to note, isn't it, that this is when Jesus began his public ministry. The first 30 years of his life, he had lived in relative obscurity. But now he comes onto the scene. And what is the first mark of Jesus coming onto the scene? It's the father saying, this is my son. This is your savior. So what about the blood? The blood. I think we point that obviously then to the cross. If the water is the baptism, the blood is the cross. And I think we take a broad pointer of this because the cross is most perfectly seen as God's testimony of Jesus in his resurrection and the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice. But just think for a moment because I think we can become very easily convinced how this points to the cross. Think about what happened there. Darkness fell upon the land, complete, utter, utter darkness in the middle of the day. There was great earthquakes, giant rocks were moved, tombs were opened, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Miraculous signs that what was happening as Jesus hung on the cross was not just some criminal being crucified. Think about the evidence of that thief on the cross testifying that Jesus was the Christ. There is Jesus, beaten, bloodied, near to death, hanging there, exposed, having suffered so greatly. Nothing in him at that point would take a dead soul and say, dead soul, this is the Savior. Yet God, in grace and mercy, opened the eyes of that one thief on the cross to show him that Jesus was his Son and the Messiah. After Jesus' death, while he still hung there on the cross, what's recorded in Matthew 27, 54? There's a centurion standing nearby, and what did he say when Jesus had breathed his last? A Roman centurion? He looks up and he says, Surely, truly, this is the Son of God. God testifying through his providential operation, that Jesus is the Son. And there's no greater testimony of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, than what we see in his resurrection. For no one has died and come back to life, but the Son of God, who died for the penalty of sin and then was raised by the Father to walk again, to show that the Father has accepted his sacrifice. Jesus declared to be the Son of God. If the Father did not accept that declaration, if he did not accept the sacrifice of Jesus, Jesus would have remained in that tomb. But the resurrection, the cross, everything surrounding his death, the blood testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. How often do you consider the testimony of God at the cross? How often do you stop and think about what the cross actually declares? 
that you are a wretched sinner, that you have nothing good in you, that all you had in you was a pathway to hell forever. And yet at the cross, the Father testi testifies that Jesus is his Son, and through the Son you may have life. The cross testifies of the great price of your sin and the great eternal love of the Father. So the water and the blood, they testify that Jesus is the Son of God. And John continues, it's the Spirit also who testifies because the Spirit is the truth, the third witness. So you have the water, the blood, and the Spirit. How does the Spirit testify that Jesus is the Son of God? There's so many ways. Specifically, you could even look to to Jesus' baptism, if you want to draw into a, a hard conclusion there. But even beyond that, think about his conception. It's the Spirit who conceived Jesus in Mary's womb. It was the Spirit who did descend upon Jesus as a dove at his baptism. It's the Spirit, Jesus said in John 14 and John 16, who would come to be our helper, who would lead us and guide us into all the truth, who would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. It's the Spirit that testifies within your dead heart that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the Holy Spirit who makes dead souls live. And that is how we know that Jesus is the Son of God. And John said that there are three that testify Testify is a present tense verb. It means to bear witness. There are these three that bear witness actively that Jesus is the Son of God, and they're in agreement. They're all saying and pointing to the same thing, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and they are in agreement. They are all saying that Jesus is the Christ. Do you realize here that the Lord in his testimony of his Son is actually confirming and working in accordance to an Old Testament principle about how we define and understand the truth, how we confirm the truth on the basis of witnesses. Two or three witnesses, and we see in Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, Numbers 35, verse 30, two or three witnesses is how we confirm the truth. And that principle carried forward into the New Testament. Places like 2 Corinthians 13, Hebrews 10, 28, and 1 Timothy 5. So the Lord, he has no need to give us these witnesses to confirm the Messiahship of his Son. Still, he does. He gives us this truth. I was reminded earlier this week in thinking about this, that, that quote from Spurgeon, where Spurgeon said that God's word is like a lion. You don't need to defend it. You let the lion out of the cage, and the lion will defend itself. That's what God's word is like, and that is what the testimony of Christ is like. We don't need to have a big, grand, glorious explanation. We need to let the scriptures speak for themselves. We need to tell of what actually happened at the cross. Let the water and the blood and the Spirit testify that Jesus is the Son of God. So you have three witnesses, and then moving to verse 
9, we have the greater testimony. The greater testimony. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. So this is, I think, one of those cases. John is not nullifying the testimony of men, but he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. The testimony of men is subservient to the testimony of God. God's testimony is greater. God's word is greater. You know, think about this just in general about testimonies. I, I was struck by a quote from, from R.C. Sproul. He said, your testimony, however meaningful it is to you, it is not the gospel. The gospel is what's written on the pages of Scripture that proclaim who Jesus is and what he did. The testimony of men is good and helpful, but the testimony of God is greater. The testimony of men is limited. Men are fallible. Men can lie. Men can become confused. Men can cover up the truth. Men may even fail to paint the whole picture, not out of a desire to sin, but just out of the limited scope of our knowledge. So yes, we make use of the testimony of men. We have to have testimony in this day. Legally, we need witnesses to testify of the truth. But we need to understand from what John says here that if we receive the testimony of men, we must always realize that God's testimony is infinitely greater. Infinitely greater. And God abides all power, all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding. He never speaks out of incomplete knowledge or a lack of understanding a purpose. For it's God who operates in sovereign providence over all of creation. It's God's testimony that is actually meaningful and that will actually faithfully always be accomplished. You may hear the testimony of a friend, but they do not have the power to always bring about whatever they say. The Lord, however, is the sovereign ruler. It's his world. It operates according to his eternal providential plan. All things are in subjection to God. And that is why his testimony is greater. Because all things are, are subservient to him. And he is greater and he knows all and has all wisdom within himself. So the word greater here is the Greek word megas. Mega. You, you hear that in the English. It means mighty in size or intensity. It can even mean loud. That is God's testimony. It's overpowering. It's overwhelming. It's fully convincing. It's great in intensity. And friends, if God's testimony about Christ is greater, if God's testimony about Christ is megas, then his testimony in all of the scriptures is that same thing. So think about God's testimony generally. We ought to order our lives around God's truth. We ought to seek to be filled up with the knowledge of his word. 
We ought to seek to always be filling our minds with His truth. I've heard people for years talk about the practice of reading a proverb a day. You know, there's 31 chapters in Proverbs, and some months there's 31 days, so you just take the first day and read the first chapter and on and on throughout the month. Recently picked up that, that practice, and just a few months in, let me tell you how transforming God's Word is in our minds. When you read the, the, this book of wisdom, this applies to all scripture, but speaks specifically about Proverbs here. You read this book of wisdom over and over repetitively, and you see these pictures and these themes that God brings together. Dear friends, we must order our lives around the testimony of God. To be filled with his wisdom is to know his word. What is this greater testimony specifically that John writes of? For this is the testimony, verse 9, the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. He has testified that Jesus is his beloved and well-pleasing son. That testimony needs to be great and grand and loud and overpowering and overwhelming to us. There's no more important fact in all of history than that we believe God's testimony about who Christ is. You can believe everything in God's word, but if you don't know Jesus, you have no hope. If you don't believe in Jesus and if you don't proclaim Jesus, you have no hope to give others. Henry writes that God's testimony about Jesus is that he came to reconcile and recover the world unto himself. To reconcile and to recover the world unto himself. That is God's testimony, that we are reconciled through the blood of the cross. You may hear the testimony of men, even multiple men, and it's not enough information for you to deem it credible. But the testimony of God, dear friends, is one that we bank our lives on. It's one that we build our lives upon. It's one that we hear, believe, trust, and submit to. And as we believe it and trust it and submit to it, our lives are transformed. John Stott says that unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied, but it's a sin to be deplored. Unbelief, not believing God's testimony, is not a misfortune to be pitied. It's a sin and should be hated and deplored because it attributes falsehood to God because he makes this great and true testimony. And that brings us into verse 10 and where we'll consider the condemning unbelief. So the three witnesses, the greater testimony, and the condemning unbelief. Remember, we just said that unbelief isn't something to be pitied, but it's a sin to be deplored. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him, made God, a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. So we'll get to the unbelief here and how it condemns. But before we do that, just consider the great comfort, the great hope at the beginning of verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. 
This testimony of God is inside of you. It's in you through God's Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the Spirit who does the work. Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts so that we cry, Abba, Father. Colossians 3, verse 3, if you've been raised with Christ, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. His testimony, His Spirit is in you. If you believe His words and give Him your life and your heart, you have this great hope. These statements, these statements of hope belong to you if you have and know and believe in Jesus as the Son of God. It's not the strength of your faith, as we say so often, but it's the strength and the veracity of the one who is the object of your faith. It's not the fact that you have faith that holds and keeps you. It's the fact that Christ is strong. Christ is great and mighty and overcame, and that he is truly the Son of God, and he holds you, and he keeps you. This is how we have hope. However, the one who does not believe in God has made him a liar, because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. If you reject God's clearly revealed word, the clear truth that Jesus is the son of God, if you reject that, if you reject the fact that you are a sinner in need of grace and that Jesus is the only way, you call God a liar. Maybe that doesn't concern you. Maybe you don't really believe in the Bible. Maybe you're not sure if the Bible is all true. Maybe you believe that that the Lord will really save everyone, and this is all just kind of meaningless babble. But if you're wrong, and if you think those things, you are wrong, you will have to answer to a just and holy God. If you reject his Messiah, he will condemn you for all eternity. We talked about God's wrath Wednesday night about the wrath of God in Christ, and it's an eternal wrath that's poured out eternally in the lake of fire. Perhaps you've heard talk about unforgivable sins. There's really only one unforgivable sin, and it's the sin of unbelief. Adultery can be forgiven. Lying can be washed and covered over by the blood of Christ, cheating, stealing, cursing, and on and on. All of that can be forgiven and washed clean, and you can be redeemed. But unbelief sets you apart from God. The one sin that condemns your soul is to continually reject Christ. And, and Jesus spoke to this in Mark, Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, verse 28 and following. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven of the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to reject the truth, to reject the ministry, to reject God's word. It calls God a liar, and his testimony then is not in you. And you set yourself on the pathway to eternal hell. 
Friends, when a church doesn't order and anchor itself according to God's word, if we're not ordered and anchored on and by God's truth, dear friend, we set ourselves on the path to this blasphemy. We must hold to the whole truth, and that just becomes more and more clear as time goes on. As time goes on, you just see the world falling more and more into sin and blasphemy and hatred of the truth. This ought to be a terrifying consideration. That if you don't believe in this Jesus, you call God a liar. And he will condemn you for that sin. You will suffer for all eternity. But let's not forget the beginning of this verse. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. You may have lived a life of blasphemy. But if you look around this room, it's a room full of people who have lived lives of blasphemy against the Lord. But then the Lord in his grace reaches down and plucks sinners off the pathway to hell and breathes new life in us by his spirit and for his glory. You should feel helpless and condemned in your sins. But you should never, ever Believe the lie that God's mercy can't snatch you from the grips of Satan. The way you escape the miserable weight of sin is always through faith and repentance. Let sin weigh heavily upon you. But then by God's mercy and grace, come to Christ in faith and repentance, and that burden is lifted. Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Listen to this, and the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. This is the will of my Father, Jesus said, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. All who come to me, I will not cast out. That is the great hope of the believer, that you come to Christ And he will not cast you out. He will receive you as one of his sheep, as his possession. And he will wash you. And he will clean you. And he will sanctify you. And he will keep you to the end. That brings us to verses 11 and 12. The eternal life. The eternal life. And this, and the testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. And he who does not have the son of God does not have the life. This is God's testimony. That God has given us eternal life. Freely. No cost. But though free to you, this Eternal life that is given to you comes at an enormously steep cost. You need to recognize that that this is costly and yet unmeritable. There's nothing we can do to earn this favor and grace and gift of God. Just because you receive it freely, dear friend, we ought never consider that it must not then have come with a cost. 
because the cost was precious, priceless, infinitely valuable blood of Christ. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The only way to forgiveness is through the Son, because He took your sin, and He took the punishment that your sin earned. And when he took your sin off of you, he clothed you in his righteousness. Made you to be perfect and holy and blameless. I think there is great value. I think it's greatly beneficial for us to consider the costliness and the ugliness and the weightiness of our sin. I think there's benefit, obviously, in us considering the fact that if we don't turn from that sin we will be condemned and punished. But the only reason that that does our souls any good is that we don't remain in that despair. So yes, be miserable, weep and mourn and have your laughter turned into gloom and your joy to mourning. But don't remain in the despair of sin. Come to see the loveliness of the Savior. This is the balance that we have to strike by the Spirit's help, both in in parenting and in every discipling relationship. You think about especially with children, and, and this applies to our fellow saints as well. You want them, you need to make them, by God's grace and with his help, feel the weight of sin. Because nobody has ever come to Christ without realizing the offense of their sin. But where the Spirit comes in, maybe for you the Spirit comes in to help you press that weight. Maybe you have that merciful nature and you you don't want them to feel the weight. So the Spirit must help you press down the weight and the offense of sin. But likewise, some need help from God's Spirit that you press that weight of sin. Sometimes it's easy to press that weight of sin with your children then you must also take them to the grace and the goodness and the loveliness of the Savior. We need to press the weight of sin, and we need to be spiritually discerning and know when it's right and appropriate to also bring in the great point of grace. The proper view of the cost of our salvation. We see in verse 12 what it is that God gives us. He who has the Son has the life. He does not have the Son of God, does not have the life. This is eternal life, yes. This is forgiveness, yes, and amen. But this is the life. The eternal blessing of being joint heirs with our Savior. It's not just a generic eternal life. It is the fact that we received Christ, and, and as John writes in John 1.12, we, when we receive him, he gives us the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We're legal heirs. In the eternal life, we share in the reign and the glory and the inheritance of the very one who died for us. That should put spring in your step that should put devotion into your heart this is the greater 
and more sure testimony of God concerning the Son. He's given us life through Christ. That life is not just a mere, meager existence. It's glorious, resurrected, purified soul through which you rightly worship Christ forever and ever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. That only happens when you're purified. That only happens when you put on immortality because of God's grace in Christ. We don't become God or gods or anything of that ridiculous nature, but we are purified. We become more like him. We are conformed to his image because we see him as he is. We receive this glorious gift. It's freely given to us. But the pathway to receive is faith and repentance. This faith and repentance is evidenced, as we saw last time, by a transformed life. A transformed heart that obeys the Lord's commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We follow him with a specific joy, with an outward, visible joy. That's what it means to be a partaker of the eternal life. Puritan William Spurstow wrote that he who truly expects glory earnestly pursues grace. I'll tweak that for purposes here. He who truly expects glory earnestly pursues Christ. When you expect that glory is coming, your heart, your affection, your desires are set upon Christ. You run after Christ with great devotion, not because you're trying to merit his favor, but because you know his favor is freely given. And that meager offering is all you have to give him. So may we hear God's testimony. May we be recipients of the eternal life that is in his son. We have so many proofs that Jesus is the Christ. All we need to do is read our Bibles. Read Isaiah 53. You know, that, that prophecy some 700 years before Jesus came, and you see these great truths, these great details that are fulfilled in only one person. What more proof do we need? Believe in God's testimony and live in such a way that proves that you have life in him. May our lives be added to the great testimonies of the saints that have gone before us. Testimonies that testify of the power and the grace of God that transforms lives. May we live in such a way that our lives testify of the saving grace of God in Christ. Let's pray.